We're talking about the the last method as we talk about having faith conversations and this concept of methods, thinking through what is my strategy for talking to people about my faith? What are the rules? What are the things that I've got to be aware of so that as I go into these conversations, it's not that there's some script I have to follow, but I do want to know what's on the table and what's off limits. What will ultimately not be helpful and profitable to the conversation and what types of things are consistent with how God tells us to talk about him and to talk about the faith that he gives. And we talked about a lot of views that have uh, problems or a lot of methods that have some unintended consequences. And now we're talking about what is called the presuppositional method or named after one of the professors who kind of most documented it and put it together, Cornelius Van Til. But for our purposes, it's really just um, what are the emphases or what are the particular ideas from this method that are so important and so helpful and useful for having conversations about our faith. And so what we were talking about at great length last week, and we'll wrap up this week, is the concept of neutrality. Because the biggest emphasis of this approach is that neutrality isn't real. And that's what we talked about last week. Whereas the culture, whether it's a modern or postmodern world, the person that we're talking to most of the time isn't even going to know if their way of thinking is modern or postmodern. But it's going to be one of them. And, And both of those views are going to try to draw us toward neutrality. And our desire... To be a nice person is going to draw us toward neutrality. And and this idea that, okay, we'll both set aside our faithy stuff and we'll just talk facts and reason and logic. And I want to show you that Christianity is true even from that perspective. And what Van Til said was, first of all, you can't do it because neutrality is not a real thing. Um, and you, you shouldn't want to do it because even if you win, you lose. If you start from human supremacy that we stand in judgment over what's true and what's false and you ultimately get them to agree with you, all you've gotten them to agree with is that humans are supreme and some humans are smarter or more logical than others. And what you're trying to get them to is that God is supreme and the truth of God in scripture is supreme. And so we have to submit all of our thinking to that. Another point I want to make about neutrality, besides the fact that it's not real, it's fake. There's no such thing. And we talked about we all have presuppositions. There's no such thing as an uninterpreted fact. Everything you know, everything you see, hear, and experience is automatically going through a lens of stuff that you believe that's usually unproven and in some cases can't be proven. Um, But something else about neutrality is that because it's not real, neutrality is inconsistent. Christianity teaches that we know what we know only because of God. God reveals it in natural revelation, what we see in the world, and in special revelation in scripture. God reveals everything that we know. There is nothing we know that God did not reveal. And so it can only be known Christianly. There's no other way to know anything except illuminated by the light of Christ. We are, as creatures, utterly dependent on our creator, not just for our existence, but for whatever it is that we're going to know. And the premises and criteria that are often taken to be religiously neutral, this is the inconsistent part. 
the laws of logic, the scientific method. We touched on this last week. Those are not neutral at all. They have substantial theological presuppositions, which is where this view gets its name. You cannot say that the law of logic doesn't have to be proven, but God does. You don't have to say that the scientific method itself doesn't have to be proven, but God does. Because when you say that, you're being incredibly inconsistent. What you're really saying is, the scientific method is my God. And you're really saying human reason is my God. right? So it's so inconsistent that they get to say, no, 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 here's your faithy stuff, and here's my rational, logical stuff, when actually all of that, which some of which may be true, a lot of it is true, faithy, ra- I mean, rational stuff, is true. But it's true because they're already assuming things that were on our side of the ledger. If you try, if you actually think apart from God, you can have nothing but error. You, you can't come up with anything right if you were to consistently remove God from thinking. That's why they have to be inconsistent, because you would take away the scientific method. You take away what's called the intelligibility of the universe, that you can trust your senses. and All that goes away. You can't use any of that, because that has an underlying presuppositional foundation that they have not proved, and they do not try to prove, because it can't be proved. Um, So when we try to reason away from God, consistently, all we can be is wrong. And that is in large part because of what theologians call the noetic effect of sin. When we say that that in the fall, we became totally depraved. So this doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity means two things. One is utterly depraved. 100%. We're not 99% fallen and 1% of us is this spark of light that can lead us back to God. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, not sick. But the noetic effect of sin also is, is honing in on another aspect of depravity, which is that every part of us is depraved. So we recognize it in our, uh, our minds, right? We choose sin and our bodies, they break down and decay and we die. But also, we are depraved in the way that we think. And so the noetic effect of sin says your mind is so broken that even given a collection of 100 perfectly true facts, your mind cannot reason truth from them because your mind is broken. The way you reason, the um, epistemology, the way we think the tools and methods that we use to come to conclusions because of the fall are as sick and broken and decaying as our bodies are that we see. Does that make sense? Let's read some scriptures. Who's got Psalm 14, 1? Fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. I mean, you missed almost, right? It says there's almost none who does good. No? Okay, there's none. Oh, okay, good, good. Uh, Proverbs 1 7. Megan? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Despise wisdom and instruction. Luke 10 21 and 22. In that same 
said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the most important truth is one we can't get to by ourselves. You cannot know truth unless God himself intervenes. It's not for a lack of facts. Romans 1 says there are plenty of facts out there for you to reason your way back to God. That's why everyone who doesn't believe is condemned. The information is available to you. But Jesus says, you don't have an information problem. You have a broken brain problem, which is the noetic effect. Who's got Ephesians 4, 17 and 18? Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Pretty self-explanatory, right? That one makes the point pretty well. Uh, Colossians 2, 3, and 8. So chapter 2, verse 3, verse 8. In in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You hear that? Two ways of thinking. One of them is redeemed by Christ. Uh, this Today's topic ties in so well with the sermon passage that... Our minds are so broken. We don't even know what we need until God not just tells us, because God tells everyone, but until he actually changes our broken minds. And we call that a new heart, and that's the Bible calls it that. It's good language for it. But remember, the Bible's language, the heart is the affections, which is also a mental activity. What I want, what I love, what I desire, what I think is good. God has to give us a new one of those. And then when he does, then we see exactly the same facts that the world is seeing. And we say, oh, Christ is Lord. I got to follow Christ. Um, so really important stuff. We cannot know apart from God. One more. First, oh no, I'm going to read this one. because uh, I'm reading 1 Corinthians 10. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is an absolutely perfect complimentary passage to what Micah says today. You cannot think rightly apart from God. You cannot do it. And so you should not fear being judged by the world for the way that you think. 
because it has not been revealed to them how God thinks. And so they are very bad judges of whether or not the way you think is good, bad, or indifferent. You, when you think rightly, you only think rightly because God himself has given the spirit to you so that you can think rightly. That's it. It's that simple. And that really, all this knowledge requires God. That there's no distinction. My two imaginary columns here of the, the, the faithy things and then the logic, rational things. It's a false distinction. If it is truth, it can only be known by God revealing that truth. Period. And this is why Van Til was so worked up about this when it comes to faith conversations. Because you are asking someone to do, in the other approaches, what cannot be done. Which is to take the facts and reason their way to the truth of those facts. But their brains are broken. And what you've got to show people in some way is not just those facts, but also this point, that they need their brains fixed. (laughs) They need God to change them to see truth. And it goes back to the concept of presuppositions. Where you start is where you'll finish. And so if they start with, I can reason to truth, then even when they get to truth, you lost Because what they think is, this is true because I think it's true. As opposed to, no, no, this is true because God says it's true. And it's only by God's grace that I agree with God that this is true. It's not by some great thing within me that led me to this conclusion. It is by a work of God in my broken brain. And when I say brain, I mean heart, brain, affections, uh, that we can do this at all. So without God, people are left in foolishness and frustration. Because... They have to be ridiculously inconsistent. They have to borrow from the faithy things, the God things, in order to even do the work of reason and logic and rationality that they become so satisfied of, oh, look, now that, that was proven true. That's real. Um, So this is why if we try to utilize neutrality in this discussions, we too would be inconsistent. If we actually said that neutrality is possible and helpful and useful, we would be very inconsistent because we would be arguing that you can come to real truth apart from the Spirit of God making you able to see truth. Um, You can't argue that the Bible is the foundation for all knowledge using an argument that says you can find some knowledge away from God's revelation. It's a self-defeating type of argument. So it's very important that it actually be the case in our faith conversations that Scripture is our authority. And this is why, you know, the tension that I have between I'm not a pure presuppositionalist, I'm not a pure classical, I think what happens when you try to do presuppositionalism in the real world is what I am. And it does look a little different on paper. um, But... What does have to be in your mind the whole time in faith conversations is, I can't give an inch on Scripture. That doesn't mean that I have to lead with the authority of Scripture. It doesn't mean that I have to make sure that in every argument, and this is where I am making a distinction with the way I practice these faith conversations, doesn't mean that in every argument I have to even talk about the authority of Scripture necessarily. 
But it does mean I can never say anything or affirm anything they say that suggests truth can be found outside of Scripture. That, that's the critically important point. Because if, if they say, well, I don't believe the Bible, so I want, tell me, prove to me that Christianity is true outside of the Bible... I think if it's that direct, at that point, you do have to say, well, I can't, but let's have this kind of conversation and see what you think. We could quibble over whether or not you have to say the I can't, but you, can't, you personally cannot actually believe and you cannot lead them to believe that what they're asking is possible. It's not possible. If you, if you won, you would lose. You can't do it consistently. And neither are they. And that's why presuppositionalism wants to start by proving their inconsistency. And so next week when we start going through tactics, you'll see that when I talk about presuppositional on paper, what I mean is when they draw out the blueprint of you do this first, and you do this second, you do this third, you do this fourth, and you can use different words as you do each of these steps because each conversation is personal based on who you're talking to. But principially what you have to be accomplishing are these steps. And the first step is uh, you've got to show them the inconsistency of their own view. You've got to show them as they ask for neutrality that they in fact are not neutral that's what presuppositionalism says you have to start with I don't know if that's right but I do know you got to get there eventually (laughs) because we talked last week whether you're modern or postmodern you think neutrality is the bee's knees (laughs) you think this is how knowledge is to be found is apart from presuppositions that's where you really find the truth. Um, all the Eastern mystic religions of where knowledge is to be found is by separating oneself from reality. No, 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 no. The way knowledge is to be found is by attaching yourself to the purest reality that can be found, which is for us the Spirit of God. Um, Richard Pratt is a professor at RTS. Some of y'all probably uh, heard him or read some of his books, but he says if trust in Christ is founded on logical consistency, Christianity is logically consistent. Historical evidence, we have that. Scientific arguments, we have those. If, however, trust in Christ is found on these things, then Christ is yet to be received as the ultimate authority because those foundations are more authoritative to Christ himself. To use yet another analogy, if belief in Christian truth comes only after the claims of Christ are run through the verification machine of human judgment, then human judgment is still the ultimate authority. If this is true, because there was enough evidence to prove to me it was true, then I can say it's true, and I'm I'm right, it is true. But it's not the ultimate authority. And it claims to be the ultimate authority. So now we have another inconsistency problem. You just have something that cannot be. So it's not actually possible to be neutral for you or for the person with the other perspective. So what you'll have to think about over the next few weeks as we talk about the tactics of these conversations is what, what's your take on the issue that I'm wrestling with of we should all agree principially ultimate authority of scripture there is no neutrality to me that case is bulletproof and that is the remarkable contribution of Van Til to faith conversations and to evangelism and apologetics but in terms of 
what order that looks like, how I articulate that, what that allows me to say and not say in a conversation, I think a lot of that's going to become a very much personal thing. I think there's going to be some definite black and white stuff, stuff that we off the table cannot say. There's going to be some stuff that absolutely must be said. The exclusivity of Christ is not something that we get to to vote on or see if it fits the mood of the person we're talking to. Um, But there's a bunch of stuff, I think, in the middle in terms of how important is it that this be said explicitly or not be said in a particular faith conversation? So questions about that before I cover the last bit on neutrality or comments? Like, especially in light of the 1 Corinthians, like, there's plenty of people we all know that it, what we believe is all folly to them. They're comfortable believing the lie, whatever the lie is in their life, that they're okay. And they might say, I'm crazy, and they might say, I'm foolish. But, like, is it is it a combination of, like, a different conversation approach and prayer that, like, just works on them over time? Again, by the Spirit of God, not by Justin. Right. You know, I guess, I, not that I'm at a loss, but it's kind of like, I know plenty of people that are just comfortable believing whatever they want to believe. It's a, it's a great thing to wrestle with, and I'll give a little bit of a meandering pastory answer. Um, the hardest part about evangelism, faith conversations for us, is that what's required for this to be effective is so incredibly simple. And it appears that those things are so rarely effective that we get discouraged or frustrated and give up on them. And so we think that what's needed is a different approach or a better approach or if I'd had better questions or if I'd said this a different way. And we've really got to go back to that 1 Corinthians text of no, No, it's not about you. Now, there's tons of stuff we need to be doing, but if I were to rank them in order of importance, prayer is number one. It's not number four or five. It is number one. When the only thing that can actually change a person's heart is the Spirit of God choosing to intervene in their heart, it's not just that prayer is number one. It's that prayer is number one. And then there is a ton of white space before you get to number two. I, I mean, just a ton. And yet, it appears, especially when it comes to praying for people's souls, that prayer is so ineffective that we get discouraged or frustrated and we don't do it as we ought. And every single person I talk to, I have never once in my life talked to a person who said, I'm really satisfied with my prayer life. I mean, I'm just killing it. Right? And I, my, my, my closest friend and mentor in college or in seminary is the greatest prayer warrior I've ever known. If my life were to ever approach 5%, that's not an exaggeration, of his time and commitment in prayer, I would pray 10 times more than I pray now. And he was not satisfied with his prayer life. And then two is, um, for shorthand, live Christianly 
is the second most important thing we can do for faith conversations. What we say to people has value. So we don't agree with the, with the falsely attributed to St. Francis quote, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. He never said it. We don't agree that the gospel can go forth by behavior. The gospel is good news. News is not something you do, it's something you say. The good news is Jesus Christ died and was raised. He is risen. Uh, But people who believe that news should live very, very, very differently from people who don't believe that news. And one of the ways we should live differently is exactly what you said about, I can take that scorn. I can take that ridicule. I can take that marginalization. As I'll talk about in the sermon today, I can take that missing out on opportunities. There are chances we will not get if we commit to following Christ. And, you know, if our kids were evaluating the situation, they would say, that's not fair. And we would say, you're right. But I'm not interested in fair. I'm interested in holiness. I'm interested in pleasing Christ. And sometimes that means, because of the world in which we live, I'm going to miss out on stuff. I'm not going to get that promotion. I'm not even going to be able to take that job. I'm not, you can't, um, you, you can't have every opportunity. I don't believe, my convictions looking at scripture, somebody who's an amazing golfer, somebody who's an amazing football player, I don't believe in the country in which we live, you have the opportunity to do that professionally and follow Christ closely. Your primary work is on Sunday, every time, right? And you have no church community in which you are planted, right? Now, Christians can disagree on that, right? But we get that category of things, right? Not just sinful stuff of, oh, you know, I can't go sell drugs. Okay, well, nobody should go sell drugs. But otherwise lawful stuff. There's nothing wrong with making your living playing golf. But there is something wrong with a system that says you cannot follow Christ closely and play golf professionally. And then you have to pick. And we don't want to pick. So people who are living Christianly bear that scorn, bear that ridicule, bear those disadvantages, bear that. You will lose lawsuits because you can't fight the way they can fight. Because you won't hire the person to come lie on the stand. Because you, right, there are things that you just will be taken advantage of. So that, to me, is big number two. Uh, and then three are the specific conversations. So least important on the list. Not unimportant, or I wouldn't be doing this class. But least important on the list. And I will say this, which is a funny thing to say in a class about how to have these conversations better. Being willing to have these conversations versus not having them at all is 90% of what you need. Every single thing we will talk about, about getting better at them, is incremental gain. 10% gain. Y'all understand that? It is so much more important that you, living Christianly, are willing to talk to someone with grace and humility about what you believe and why you believe it. That is so much more important than that you can do it well, than that you can do it with the right method. And so, I mean, we're really working on incremental gains in a Sunday school class like this. Now, the reason why... 
a class like this is worth doing is because my experience with human beings is the more skilled and comfortable you feel, the more likely you are to be willing to have them. And so that becomes a virtuous cycle. Uh, you get a little bit of wind in your sails and you feel like this is something I can do, not just something I should do and don't feel guilty about. Yeah, I mean, it's a great thing we need to be wrestling with. It's why, you know, as the session worked through this Vine Project book together a couple months ago, there was not a lot in that book. That was, this probably will sound bad, that was a very affirming book for us because we read it and a lot of the stuff they were talking about, we thought, yes, we're doing this. By God's grace, the advice that we got from other churches and the stuff that we're doing so much of this in terms of making the service accessible, Despite our style of worship, making our service accessible to people across all levels of maturity in the Christian faith, which is really what that book's about, moving people one step closer to Christ no matter where they are. But one of the areas that we really saw as a weakness in our church is moving them from the don't know Christ to do know Christ part of the spectrum. And so that's why. We want to emphasize praying for salvation in the elders' prayer. It's why we want to have a bulletin board where we put initials and people's names on it so that every time, whether or not y'all do it, every time the elders walk by that board, we know it's there and why it's there, and we remember to pray for some of those people. And you know, um, Getting some basically reformed tracks, that's a hard thing to do in the reform world because we don't believe the gospel gets summed up in a three-page cartoon. Right? But having something to equip you with so that if you met somebody who is willing, you had something you could give them that gives an accessible presentation of the gospel. Um, we need to be better at that. But that willingness goes such a long way. We won't get the opportunity or our opportunities will be counterproductive if we're not living Christianly. And then none of it matters without prayer. And it's, I mean, it seems so cliche to say that in a church, but it's, it's not. It's just not. There is absolutely nothing that can change a human heart. There's no magic words. There's no magic formula. There's no complex methodology. Cornelius Van Til himself never saved a soul. <laughs> And so it's all got to be uh, tremendously uh, bathed in prayer. Other questions? All right, last little point on neutrality is just on that basis of every, the other scriptures we read. Neutrality is not possible. Neutrality is inconsistent. But here's an emotional reason to avoid this push for neutrality. Neutrality is not honoring to God. God demands absolute intellectual allegiance. Who's got Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven? Joyce. And he said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind." I'm sorry, that your translation's wrong. It says part of your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Part of your heart. No. Oh, oh, all of, right? All your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Who's got 1 Peter 3, 15? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
And we've read this one earlier. We'll get, Renee, you read it this time, and I want to revisit it. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. I mean, the words are chosen carefully by God. Uh, it's like legal language or contracts. Um, you know, Justin, I imagine, looks at boring contract and this type of language all the time. And there's a significant difference between may and must. May and shall. Right? And God, you must not walk in the way of the Gentiles. You must not do it. God demands absolute intellectual allegiance. We don't just want to reach the correct conclusion. We've got to reach it in the right way. And that point keeps coming up because that's the even if you win, you lose. And now that's also the it doesn't honor God. It doesn't honor God to say, God, set your, your yeah, I know you said stuff, but I'm going to set that aside because my words will be much better to bring this person to the truth of reality than yours would be. Good luck with that. Right? It's not honoring to God. So we should not defend the faith by arguing in a manner that's neither for nor against Christianity. We're going to set it aside. We'll both pull back and be neutral. And I'll go on this journey with you. And we'll decide which one of these is the best thing to believe. Whatever your approach is, it has to demonstrate to the person that you are gripped by the Spirit of God. And you can understand where they're coming from. You're sympathetic with where they're coming from. You can talk all the historical facts and the evidences and the proofs. And you will have all of these conversations. But you will only do it as someone who is gripped by the knowledge of God. Um, We should think according to His truth and His standards, even as we are defending them. We have to be willing to think like Christians and appeal to Christian principles, even when arguing for Christianity. And the whole presuppositional idea is, they're doing that too. And so, what you're getting at in the conversation, where presuppositionalism starts, is showing them that they're doing that too. We're all borrowing from Christianity. Every worldview that exists is living on borrowed presuppositions. And you just have to show them that they're borrowing those and that they have a choice. They can either accept that we all have presuppositions and we're going to put ours honestly on the table, or they have to stop using the ones from Christianity and they're only allowed to use the ones they can prove themselves. They have to hold themselves to their own standard. And as we get to the mechanics of this, you'll see that obviously that's not even possible. Um, what was Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. It's all his. All the facts, all the truth, it's all his. And so in principle, there is an absolute opposition between the epistemology of the Christian, how we think, reason, and argue, and the epistemology of the non-Christian. In principle, those are utterly irreconcilable. Praise God for common grace. (laughs) Because in practice, things are never quite as bad as that. 
That's why there's common ground in these conversations is it's extremely rare that you meet the person who is absolutely adamant that we are living in a simulation and there is no reality and there blah right that's a different one <laughs> for almost everybody else they're living on those borrowed christian presuppositions and bathed in prayer talking to somebody who's living a christ life like life whose life is appealing and that who they would want to talk to we can reason with them and have conversations about the nature of truth. Um, because what we're trying to show them is that unless someone thinks Christianly, they cannot think rightly. That's where all of this has to come down. You can't know anything apart from Christ. And that's why it says in principle, therefore, they know nothing. Well, that's uh, pretty much a non-star. In practice, by God's common grace, they know a lot of things. They know a lot of things that are true. That's why a lot of even godless science reveals amazing truths to the world. Because God's common grace is remarkable. But what you need to get them to see is that they didn't get that truth because of human ability. They got that truth because of God's common grace through human ability. Um, So the conclusions that we reach... I don't care what label you put on yourself in the end. You see how much trouble I have putting a label on my approach to apologetics. Um, you know, Jake rebuked me last week because he said, you got to stop that. You're not a classical apologist. Your view is not classical apologetics. Uh, kind of is. I don't care what label we use, right? These are about having faith conversations. <laughs> at, at, in college, if we were at the university, it would be more important that we figure out the label. Right? Because, and, and I don't mean that Cynically, the labels are important at that level because that's where it's supposed to be taught and put into categories and buckets so it can be explained. For us, I don't care as much about the buckets, but the conclusion you reach on neutrality must impact the way you have these faith conversations. You've got to come to your own conviction about what's on the table and what's off, about what God expects of you in these conversations, what you must do, what, what, um, what's harmful about neutrality, what are the unforeseen consequences of these particular approaches. All of this matters because you are doing your part. And again, I think we've done a good job of appropriately showing how far down the chain our part is. But we are doing our part in God's work of bringing people to himself and we want to do that well and well does not mean successful by earthly measures well does not mean the other person walks away happy well means you honored God and you can't honor God by denying God (laughs) 